So some things are just impossible to explain. You ever tried to explain to someone what water tastes like? I mean, it's, it's easy for me because all my water tastes like coffee. <laughs> Have you ever tried to explain what a color looks like without using any other colors? It's impossible, right? The other day, my son, Jack, he asked me, Dad, why did God make mosquitoes? I can't explain that one, can't answer that one. What I said to him is, I don't know, son, but we're all itching to find out. Because <laughs> I'm a dad, I have to tell dad jokes. It's the law. You know, some things, as you try to explain them, you discover that, that words just don't really work in trying to convey the idea and trying to explain it. There is this concept, this idea that is mentioned in Scripture hundreds of times. There's, there's a word that's used hundreds of times, a very important word. It's one that we've talked about before because it is so important. In, in Hebrew, the word is hesed. And that's the word that is used to try and explain or to communicate God's loving action toward mankind. I have a friend named Chad who is uh, a, a legit Hebrew scholar, and he calls hesed, this Hebrew word, he calls it untranslatable love. Because the concept it's trying to convey, that the scope, the size, the depth, the otherworldly nature of God's love simply can't be captured in any human word or any human language. It's often translated as steadfast love, and yet that really doesn't do it. Uh, the best definition I've ever found comes from a children's book author of all people, Miss Sally Lloyd-Jones. She offers this definition of hesed. She says, it is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. That's pretty good. It's, it's a hard, almost impossible word, concept to fully define, and yet it's worth our study as we continue this series called God Talk. It's worth our study because if we're able to grasp, glimpse, just a piece of chesed, what that is, then we grab something of the glory of God himself. Psalm 136 mentions this word, chesed, 26 times. 26 times, the author of this psalm gives examples, moments from Israel's history, from everyday life, that for the psalmist are a picture, just a, a snippet, a glimpse of what chesed actually is. And as you work through the psalm and you look at it, what you see is that as the psalmist laid out this, this definition of this indescribable, undefinable word, he says that there are essentially four categories, four places that you can look in your life to try and get a sense of this impossible to define but essential notion of God's love for mankind. And if you look at the psalm starting in verse 4, uh, the first place it tells us to look to get a glimpse of this, of this undefinable, untranslatable love, the first place you look is in creation. Uh, when, you, when you look at the stars, when you look at the sun, when you look at the, the ground beneath your feet, that's a glimpse of God's love. Now, when, when we look at a, a, a mountain or a, a West Texas sunset, or we stand on the edge of the ocean, the first thing that comes to our mind typically is beauty. And, and of course, it's beautiful. But maybe this thought has never crossed your mind from a biblical perspective. Psalm 136, chesed perspective. What you're looking at when you see the stars in the sky or a West Texas sunset 
When you see that, what you're seeing is not just beauty. What you're seeing is an I love you. You're seeing an I love you because it doesn't have to exist in the first place. Not only does it not have to exist, it doesn't have to be beautiful. It also doesn't have to be so functional. I mean, it sustains our every moment. Our every breath is upheld by this creation. It doesn't have to be rejuvenating. Like, you can walk through it. You can stare at the beauty of it and, it, and it does something to your soul, to your spirit, to your mind, to your body. You're better from having dwelt in it. It doesn't have to do all that, but it does. And more. What, what do you call it when someone that's important to you not only does a job for you, but they go all extra for you? Like, like your spouse not only makes dinner, but they make your favorite dinner. They not only load the dishwasher, but they load it the right way. <laughs> what do you call it when they do more than just get the job done? They do extra that they know is going to speak to your heart, going to speak to your soul. It's going to bless you. What do you call that? What, what's the word for that? Well, that's hesed. That's otherworldly, divine love. And when you look at the glory and the beauty, the functionality, the purpose, the intentionality of creation, that's what you have. You have love. The other place the psalmist tells us to look to get a glimpse of what it means to be loved by God is to look perhaps obviously at salvation. We see this indefinable, untranslatable love of God in what he's done to save us. Now, what's important to note is that in Old Testament history, the, the, the pinnacle of God's saving work was the exodus, which is what the psalmist recalls for them. The moment where, with might and miracle, Moses shows up and he, he sets God's people free from slavery in Egypt. And the psalmist says, remember, remember what God did in setting us free from slavery in Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea and how he struck down Pharaoh and then how he sustained us in the wilderness. Remember how he saved us? That's God loving us. But what you and I now know is that that exodus, that saving moment, was actually looking forward to an ultimate exodus, an ultimate saving moment for all of mankind, where, where Jesus Christ, who called himself the greater Moses, shows up, God's own son, and he leads all of humanity to freedom, freedom from slavery to sin and death and the dysfunction of this world that no longer gets the last word for us because he's lived for us, he's died for us, and he's risen for us. He sets us free. And then when we're baptized into God's family, all that Jesus has won for this world, the freedom he's found, gets applied personally and publicly and supernaturally to you and you and you. And so now we're able to believe through faith that I'm free and you're free and we're all free. We're all saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Have you ever had somebody give you a gift that you know like they probably couldn't afford but you really, really needed? Like they show up and they give you something that's surprising and you're like, I don't even know how you afford this because I can't afford this, but I really, really need this. And they hand it to you. It's, if you've ever received a gift like that, you know how powerful that is. You know how like life-changing that can be. When someone at great cost to themselves blesses you in a way in which you desperately, deeply need to be blessed. What, what do you call that? What is that? What's the name for that thing? What is it? 
It's, it's hesed. It's that otherworldly, indefinable, but you know it when you see it kind of divine love. And that's what you have received in the world's greatest expression of such love in the work of Jesus Christ. But the psalm continues. It's long. You heard it. The psalm continues. There's more places to look. Not only can you look in creation, not only can you look in salvation, it says you need to look at the moments of victory in your life. And you might think, well, that's where it ends for me. I don't have any victory. You got victory. You just got to open up your eyes to it. In the psalm itself, it points to the moments in Israel's history where God gave them victory over various tribes and different kings. It mentions Og, king of Bashan, which sounds like straight out of Game of Thrones. And what the psalmist is saying is, you know all those victories that we thought were won by our hand? You know who actually was fighting for us and with us and alongside of us? You know who actually gets all the credit? You know who gave us all of those real-world earthly victories? Who gave those to us? God gave those victories to us. And you have some of those. I know you do. Just open your eyes to them. Who is your king of Bashan? I talked a couple days ago to, um, to a young couple, they're in their early 30s, who graduated college with a combined debt of like $150,000. And they weren't doctors. <laughs> and yet they committed like the first six, eight years of their marriage to, to paying down this debt little by little. They went without, they scrimped, they saved, they said no to all the fun things, all the enjoyable things for six, eight years until finally they paid off all of that debt. That's a victory, right? Or maybe you're on the other side of some cancer treatments. Or you finally like reconciled and made things a little bit better with your mother-in-law. If that ain't a victory, I don't know what is. Or maybe you, maybe you quit drinking or quit dipping. Something, quit dipping. Or maybe you have just successfully parented a teenager where everyone's still alive. That's victory. You got it. Just open your eyes to it. Now, now, now who, do you think was, uh, who do you think was behind all that? Who do you think was working in all that? Who actually gets the credit for all that? I mean, what do you call it when you end up on the other side of something that was scary for you and frightening for you, but you've actually not only survived it, you've, you've conquered it, and now you've got a story to tell about it. What, what do you call that? What is that? That's That's Hesed. That's otherworldly, indefinable, divine love. Because who got you through it? You know who got you through it. You know. But then the psalm just keeps going. It says you can look in your moments of weakness. I love the way the psalmist says, says it. It says, the Lord remembered us in our low estate. That's beautiful. It's really just a way of saying that God was with us in our moments of frailty and humanity and utter weakness. Yeah, you have to remember in, in the Hebrew mindset, to say that someone remembered something, it, it's so much more than just saying they, they recollected something. It's not as though he's saying, oh, God thought about us when we were struggling. Oh, life's bad for them, too bad. That's not what God did. To remember something in the, in the Hebrew world was to actually revisit it, is to show up. So what the psalmist is saying is God showed up in our lowest state. God was with us 
in our weakness, in our lowest, most human and mortal of moments, God was not absent, he was there. Have you ever had God, the presence and the promises, or even the people of God show up in a moment of profound weakness and humanity? Have you experienced that? One of, the, one of the most powerful and beautiful things that I get to do in my job, and you might find this strange, but it's so true, one of the best, most beautiful things that I get to do in my line of work is that I get to be with people in their lowest state. I get to show up in their weak and lonely and mortal moments. I get to show up when they're in the hospital and they weren't planning on being in the hospital, or when they're on a hospice in their home and they're dying or when they're on the floor in tears because their spouse left them. You know, what happens in those moments is we think we're going to be alone. In our moments of weakness, we think that the world is going to run away. And here's the sad truth. More often than not, the world does run away when we become weak. Because we don't know what to do with one another's weakness. It frightens us. It scares us. And so we see someone's full humanity or mortality on display. And what we tend to do is go, ah, thoughts and prayers, and run away. But what do you call it when someone actually shows up in your moment of deep, deep weakness and just sits with you and loves you and is present with you? What do you call that? The great writer Richard Foster once told the story about a dad with a, with a two-year-old, and they were walking through the mall waiting for mom to finish some shopping. And this two-year-old was tired. He had not eaten. He was being his worst two-year-old self. And so dad finally just picked up his two-year-old son and wrapped his arms around him and held him closely while the son wiggled and whined and complained. And he held him closely, and he just made up a song as he bounced him up and down and walked through the mall. Some of you parents, you, you have made up some silly, stupid songs, right? The song didn't rhyme, didn't really make sense, but it showed the dad's heart, and he just sang it for his son. So he walked through the mall singing, you're my boy, you're the best boy. Where is your mom? I hope she shows up. Where is your mom? You're the best boy, and I love you so much. And they walked store to store around the mall, singing this song, arms wrapped around his wiggly son, until finally the son just kind of settles in and stares up at his dad at this strange but wonderful music coming from his father's lips. Eventually, they find mom and they get to the car and dad buckles the two-year-old into the car seat. And the second the two-year-old is buckled into the car seat, the two-year-old lifts his arms in the air and says, sing it again, dad. (laughs) In your weakest and lowest of moments, It might seem like God is far from you, but what he's doing is drawing close to you. He wraps his arms around you, and he sings a song of love to you. He doesn't run away. He draws close. There's another psalm that you need to know. Listen to this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I know when you are brokenhearted, and some of you are brokenhearted right now, I know it seems like God is one of the people who's run away, but he's not. He promises to be near. He promises to be closer than ever in your weakness and to wrap you in his arms and to tell you. And maybe this is the moment he's telling you that you're his child and he loves you so much and he's never going to let you go. What do you call that? What's the word for that? That's chesed. 
That's otherworldly, indefinable, untranslatable, divine love. That's what that is, and that's what you have. Now, there's one other thing you need to know. In Psalm 136 and then elsewhere in the scriptures, what we get is, is not only where we can glimpse this love, but what we get is, is something of the nature of this love too. What you see in Psalm 136, and if you scour the rest of the scriptures, is that this, this indefinable love of God, this chesed, it has a certain character to it. And, and the best way I can say it is that the love of God doesn't wait. And this is truly what makes the love of God otherworldly, surprising, and divine. You see, love in every other form, from every other entity, it waits. It pauses before it pursues. It waits to see if it's going to be worthy of the investment. It waits to see if the other person is going to be worthwhile. It waits to see if it's going to be reciprocated. It waits to see if it's going to be understood, if it's going to be accepted. It waits to see if it's worth it before it moves forward. But the love of God doesn't work like that. In Psalm 136, does it say it all, because God saw it would be worth it, or because God saw something worthy in us, his steadfast love endures forever? No. It says you had a low estate. You were defeated by foreign armies. It says you were in captivity. You were uncreated. And yet, God said, I love you. It does not wait. And this, this is counter to everything that we see in our culture today, especially. We live in a world that says, I will love because I feel like loving. I love based on emotions, and that's what makes my love legitimate. That's what obligates me in love, if I actually feel like loving you. What does God say? God loves because he's committed himself to loving us. God loves not because it's worthwhile for him. He's full in and of himself. He loves not because he's seen something worthy in us. He loves because he made a promise, a commitment to love us. The world says, I will love based on emotion. God says, I will love because I've made a commitment to love you. And that's what you have in the cross of Jesus Christ. The word covenant that gets thrown around. You know what that word means? It could also be translated as promise. God has made a promise to us. In the death of Jesus Christ, he dealt with everything that's unlovely in us, everything that makes us unworthy of various things, including his love. He's dealt with all of our unloveliness, all of our unworthiness in the death of Jesus Christ. And then in that has made a promise. I've dealt with all that's unlovely and unlovable in you in him. So now all you get is my love. Because I dealt with all that's unlovely in him. He doesn't wait because he's promised to love us no matter what he finds in us, no matter what happens with us. And I'll tell you something. If you, if you try to mimic this love and live it out in your own life, it will be a powerful transformative force. If you, if you refuse to wait until you feel like loving to actually do loving things, it will transform the people around you. Actually, the primary person it will transform is you, is you. C.S. Lewis once said, I couldn't find the exact quote, but I know he said it. C.S. Lewis once said something to this effect. If you, if you choose to love that which you don't like, be careful 
what you don't like might just become lovely. Because what happens is when you say, despite emotions, I will act on promise and I will do the things that love requires, fondness grows. Emotions follow after that. And that is advice I've given to married couples year after year after year in ministry. When your emotions aren't there, when you don't feel like loving, do what love requires because that's what you promised to do. And watch, watch your emotions follow. Watch as your actions of love create something that you're able to see that is lovely and lovable in them. And that's what God does to us. What do you call it when someone loves you and doesn't wait for you to show that you're worthy? What do you call it when someone does that? What's the word for that? Chesed. It's the other world, the divine love of God. Now, knowing all this, where we can look to get a glimpse of God's love and knowing a little something of the character of God's love, what do we do with all this? Well, thankfully, the psalm actually answers that question at both the beginning and the end. There's a series of imperative statements at the beginning of Psalm 136 and at the end of Psalm 136 that tells us exactly what we are to do when we glimpse the indefinable love of God in our lives. Do you remember what it is? Give thanks. Give thanks. When you see evidence of God's otherworldly love in your life, you give him praise. You say Thank you. Psalm 136 in the Hebrew tradition is called the great Hillel. Hillel is the root word that's used for our word hallelujah, which means praise God. When you see evidence of God's otherworldly love, you say thank you. When you see the sunrise, you say thank you. When you experience a little victory in life, you say thank you. When you remember on a Sunday, oh yeah, right, I'm forgiven, you say thank you. When in your weakness, God shows up in the kind word of a friend or a promise from Scripture that just pops up in your mind at the right moment, you say, thank you. We are to be people who, when we glimpse the love of God, we are filled with a hallelujah over and over and over again. That's what we are called to do. Thank you. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. There, there are certain things in this world that are like impossible to explain. You just can't find the right words for it. And the love of God towards mankind, towards you, is one of those things. But here's the thing to keep in mind. Though it can't be described, it can be seen. So when you see it in the week ahead, when you see the sunset you don't deserve to see, when you're reminded of your forgiveness, when you experience a victory, when you're met with love in your weakness, what will you say? What will you, what will you call it? What will you call it? Love. I am loved. The love of God has broken through into my typical Tuesday and reminded me. And then as a smile creeps across your face and your kid or your coworker looks at you and goes, what are you so happy about? What do you do? You tell them. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe, so maybe you just, 
You point to the thing that for you is evidence of God's love for you, or, or, or better yet, better yet, better yet, because it's so hard to describe. Why don't you just be it to them and for them? Meet them in their moment of weakness. Help them accomplish a victory. Remind them that the war is over and that they are free. Show them the beauty of this world. Be the love of the Lord that endures forever, that breaks through into their life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us, and yet your love itself is so, so impossible for us to fully grasp, fully define. It is, it is untranslatable, and yet we know it when we see it. And thank you for reminding us today of where we can look to see evidence of your never-ending, non-stop, unrelenting love for us. And Father, I know that there are some among us today who's whose hearts are heavy, whose hearts are broken for various reasons. Your love feels like such a foreign concept. Father, we, we pray that you would, you would make yourself known to them, that they would hear my words even this morning as your own voice, saying that, that you see them and that you know them, that your love has found them, and that they are not alone, that every sin is forgiven, that their future is secure and that they should see every tiny grace that they encounter in the week ahead as evidence of your presence and your goodness and your love for them. Father, keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds open and then fill our hearts with hallelujahs so that we might be people who walk around repeating like the psalm itself. Man, the love of the Lord endures forever. The love of the Lord endures forever. And then may we embody and be that love somebody else in some small way who needs a breakthrough of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.